you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Good morning again, City on a Hill. How you been the last five minutes? Good? Good. Hey, I'm going to pray again, and we're going to dive into Joshua 2. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. As Nat prayed, would you open our eyes to see what you want to say, to see Jesus as big, as bold, and as beautiful as he really is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have uh, been a part of our church for any time at all, and if you are new today, know this. I love a good spy story. Anyone with me in terms of the the genre of Netflix they're looking at? You know, Homeland was the best TV show that has ever been made. Jack Ryan is up there. Love a good international thriller, tactical espionage spy story. And especially, especially when they happen to be true stories. See, to me, it is a little bit like a sinless way to engage in gossip. Because you're, you're invited behind the curtain. You get to, get to know the things that other people don't know. 
state secrets and all that goes on behind kind of the, the, the veneer of what we think is, is reality uh, in the world. But there's all this stuff between nations going on. And uh, the reality of Spycraft uh, perhaps was, was brought to our attention this past week, wasn't it? Perhaps you saw on the news that, that apparently there was a, a Chinese spy balloon traveling across the United States. But it was also brought to my attention before that uh, because uh, there's, there's, a, there's a number of uh, genres that I read, uh, a small selection. You know, there's, there's leadership and theology. I'm a pastor. I've got, I've got to read it in that direction. There's sports biographies, but then there's spy stories. Spy stories are another genre I read. In the last couple of weeks, I've been uh, reading a biography of a woman named Ursula Kaczynski. Uh, she went by the name Agent Sonia. Uh, Ursula was a, a Soviet Russian communist spy, and her life spanned almost the entire 20th century from the beginnings of the Bolshevik, Revo Bolshevik Revolution uh, to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and on the surface, she was just uh, an everyday 20th century stay-at-home mom, uh, housewife, and yet behind the scenes, she had multiple names, numerous roles, many disguises, most famous for uh, being the handler for, for Hans Fuchs, who, who, who worked as himself a spy in the UK for uh, the Russians in helping to create the first nuclear weapon. And as cool as it is to, to engage in that gossip, to be brought behind the scenes or behind the curtain, there's one thing about Ursula that leaves you after uh, kind of listening to her story with a great sense of disappointment and sadness and despair because uh, she seemingly came to see it at the end of her life, and that is the, the, the cause for which she was spying. She was a Russian-Soviet uh, Russian spy, communist spy, and the author of her biography reflected at the end of her life on this. She, she spent her entire adult life fighting for something she believed to be right and died knowing that much of it had been wrong. Now, for a spy movie, uh, that might be a little bit too deep, but in real life, the, the cause and the ethics for which we live our lives, that we go about vouching for about our business, you know, that, that, the cause is incredibly important. And if you're going to be a secret agent or a spy, you want to be spying, you want to be doing your work for the very right reasons. Well, imagine my joy, given all of this then, to, to flick open Joshua chapter 2. And realize that in the Bible itself, we have tactical espionage. We have an international thriller on our hands here. And in this case, we have a true story, and yet a true story of spycraft for the greatest cause of all, the most important cause in the universe. Because this is not just a thrilling spy story, but it is indeed one that actually exposes for us the answer to a question that has plagued humanity since then, even down to today. Perhaps it might be the reason, consciously or unconsciously, that you have gathered with us this morning. It answers the question of how can we be made right with the living God? How can you and I be made right with the living God? So to catch us up to where we are here in, in Joshua chapter 2, Israel stands at the border to the much-anticipated promised land. Let me recap the story of the Bible, the whole Bible, up to Joshua chapter 2. If you're familiar with the Bible, the Bible begins, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And in the very first chapters, we see this great tension, or the two great realities that we feel in our life today. That is that all things were created good. Indeed, 
very good. And so the first parents, Adam and Eve, they're a dwelling in harmony with God himself in the garden. And yet then it goes really bad because Adam and Eve disobey and reject God and they break the goodness of God's creation by bringing in sin and disobedience into the world. And so we also experience not just everything is as good and as humanity is totally valuable, but everything is as broken and humanity is totally depraved. But then by the time we get to chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, God has decided, he's hatched a plan for how he's going to make things right again. And so he chooses a man, a man named Abraham. And even though Abraham didn't have any kids, he said, hey, Abraham, through you, I'm going to make a family. And through that family, the whole earth is going to be blessed. I'm going to save a people. And I'm going to make people right with God once again. And so as that family arrives through miraculous means, it multiplies. But then it finds itself by the end of Genesis in Egypt, enslaved to Pharaoh. The book of Exodus starts and God raises up another man, Moses, to lead his people out of Egypt and bring them toward their own land. But again, the traces of sin remain, the effects of sin and unbelief remain. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Last week we saw that Moses dies and the baton is passed to Joshua to now lead God's people. And they're now right on the border of the promised land. One of the lost elements of that biblical storyline as we trace through it, it's very important to know for where we are right now, is that back when God made promises to Abraham, he didn't just promise him a family, he promised that family a place to stay. He promised that family a land. And when he made that promise, Abraham himself was actually standing in the land. He was already there, but he was there with a whole host of other nations. And we're told that God was going to take Abraham's family out of that land while he waited patiently for the iniquity of the nations within that land to be full before bringing those people back to bring his judgment upon those nations. And so as Israelites go in, not only is this kind of a a good news story for Israel, it's a bad news story for all those who are still in their sins cut off from God because God has been patiently waiting But now that iniquity is full. It's time for judgment to start. But what if those same people could be made right with God? What if those same people could be saved from that judgment? What if there was hope for these people as the Israelites were there about to enter? Well, welcome to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to look at this chapter today uh, as a whole before we get into the details And I'll summarize the Bible reading we just had for you. Joshua, he finds his 007, he finds his CIA agents, and he sends two spies on in to the very first, uh, essentially strategic place that the Canaanites are, the, the fortress, military stronghold to the eastern border of this land. It's a fortress called Jericho. And the spies make their way as they... uh, must have snuck into the city of Jericho. They make their way into the city, and it's an ancient city that likely had two walls, an an inner wall where everything precious was protected, and then an outer wall. And if you went to Jericho's version of realestate.com.au and you you kind of, you know, been saving up for a house deposit, you're just kind of like, whatever we can afford, the ones that you could afford would have been on the outer wall. The cheapest properties in the city will have been attached to the outer wall because they were most vulnerable 
to attack. And so sure enough, we see on the outskirts of the city, there's a prostitute's house built into the wall. Now, spies are entering, entering the city. They, they want to blend in. And so they, they go where the foot traffic is leading them. They go where, where it looks like there's a line out, outside the house. It's outside the prostitute's house. And so they head on in there to get intel from her and her clientele. Now, the prostitute's name is Rahab. But just as this is happening, obviously some people had seen these spies, and so a report goes back to the king, and he sends his guards to Rahab's house to find these men and capture them before they can get their intel. Surely, this Canaanite prostitute is going to hand over these spies to the king as a loyal constituent. But incredibly, she, she hides the spies, and then she winsomely deceives the king's guards and throws off the scent, And she lets the spies down the outside wall out of her window from her house. And so it turns out that the cheap property was convenient for the spy craft. And she tells them where to hide. And as a parting gift, the spies give her a scarlet cord to wrap around her window so that when judgment does come and the Israelites are there, everyone will see, hey, that is the place of safety. That is the place that's going to be spared Now, there's more to the story, as we'll see, but let's focus in on the big idea of Joshua chapter 2. You know, one thing to know about ancient literature is how they wanted to communicate their big ideas, how they wanted to emphasize what was the main thing they wanted to get through to their people. Maybe today, you and me, if we wanted to emphasize something, we'd put a massive exclamation mark in our writing. Maybe if it's really a lot of emphasis, there's a lot of exclamation marks. Maybe there's so many exclamation marks that you, you, you release shift too early. And so it goes exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, one. Maybe you highlight what you want to emphasize. You know, what the ancients did in a non-literate culture to make sure their, the punch came for what they wanted to communicate is, is they would build burgers into the structure of what they were writing. That is, that they would have kind of bread on either side, then the veggies or cheese in between, and then what they really wanted you to know was right in the middle, the meat in the middle. And so here in in Joshua chapter 2, we have a burger. On either end of this chapter, we have Joshua sending out and receiving spies. Then the next layer in, we have this sense of concern for the people and protection of the characters in the story. But then right in the middle, in verses 8 to 13, We have this very important confession, this speech that Rahab gives. And we know that this is exactly what the author wanted to emphasize because he stops the order of the narrative to double-click in on what Rahab said to the spies. In verse 6, the spies were hidden. In verse 7, the guards came in and were thrown off the scent and then went off to pursue them. But then in verse 8, the author takes us back to what Rahab said to the spies before They were hidden. So look with me to verse 8 of Joshua chapter 2. It says this, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God 
in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, something evidently got to the city before the spies got there. Something went before them, before they entered Rahab's house, and that was the word got there. News had gotten there. God's reputation had preceded him. And so Rahab responds to them as she's responding to this news. She's responding to what she has come to hear about who God is. And she's responding not in the way that the majority culture around her will have responded, but she's responding with faith. She heard the news. She believed. And now she confesses. Your God, He is the Lord. And so Rahab trusts that this God who she's heard has worked so mightily for the people of Israel, who's brought his power to bear upon his enemies, who's melted the hearts of her people in fear, that he's actually melted her heart for faith. And so she believes this God. She believes that this God might, might just have a sense of mercy upon her and her house that in the midst of the judgment to come, she might be able to find safety and refuge from that judgment and be saved. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you might get a, the idea about why this is the big idea of the chapter. It's the big idea of the chapter because, in a sense, that is the big idea of the whole story of the Bible. And Joshua doesn't want us to miss it. Because it's the answer to the haunting question, how can you and I become right with God? How can anyone, let alone a Canaanite prostitute, become right with God? Well, the author wants us to know that Rahab was saved from judgment by faith alone. She was saved from judgment by faith alone. Now, what's remarkable is if we think about who this Rahab is Rahab there is, is living on the outskirts of her city. She could not get any closer to the edge of the city. And the morality of this city, as we'll see, it's kind of moral standard, would make you and I blush. And yet even still in that place, she was on the outskirts of the city. And so she's the shame of her city. She is uh, on the lowest peg of the social totem pole. And she's engaged in a lifestyle that the Canaanites who were about to be judged for their immorality and their decadence and their debauchery and their disrespect toward God, that even them, they saw her as below them. And yet in the days to come, not to give the story away, but the, the walls are going to fall down and yet Rahab's going to still be standing. And she's going to still be standing in the face of God's judgment because of her trust in who God is. Now, this story that we're in in Joshua 2 is, is for sure, it's, it's, it's about Rahab's salvation from God's judgment through the Israelites some 3,300 years ago. Rahab was made right with God in this instance before facing a real imminent historical judgment. But it helps clarify for us something very important for us and for anyone, if you're here, who wants to understand Christianity at all. Because it sits as a picture of what we believe about the world. You know, at Easter time, we celebrate Jesus' death on the cross, and Jesus' death on the cross is the moment where so much changed in the world. And yet, it didn't change one important thing. One thing stayed the same. So often we think that Old Testament believers, you know, they, they were right with God because they were Jewish. Well, they were right with God because they participated in this system of, of sacrifices 
or they were right with God because they, they obeyed the law. What we see here in Rahab is what we also see in Abraham and what the Apostle Paul in the very influential book of Romans is at pains to point out, and that is that believers before Jesus were made right with God by faith. Just as believers after Jesus, you and me, can be made right with God by faith. We're told Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Rahab believed God and she's counted not amongst the judged Canaanites, but amongst the rescued people of God. You see, it would, be, it would be newsworthy if Jesus had merely died to make it possible for you and I to earn our way into receiving what he died for or the application of his death, that perhaps we could earn it and add to Jesus' work by, by being good people. But then that wouldn't be good news for sinful people like me, people who have hearts like mine that can, can never really be wholehearted enough when we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. People like me who, who make foolish decisions or say harsh things or make judgments upon other people, that if it's all about us being good enough, then none of us could ever quite make it. It wouldn't be good news. Or perhaps people could, could earn it through, through athletic performance. You know, I've seen some of you on Strava. You, you guys would make it. But there'd be some of us, some of us who are beyond the five-minute kilometers, you know, like some of us, let alone those who are lame or, or crippled or, or the same. It wouldn't be good news for those of us. We'd be left out of the chance of being made right with God. Or perhaps God could have said that, well, actually, you just need to re reach a certain level of comprehension or a, a certain IQ. But those of us who had, who had kind of average ATAR scores, you know, those of us who, who went to public school, those of us who, who are perhaps so young that we're still working out our, our understanding, or those of us who are perhaps so old that we've forgotten all the understanding, you know, you know all of us, a lot of us would be, would, be, would be left out, wouldn't we? It wouldn't be an invitation for us. But what makes the good news good news? It's not just that, that Jesus died in our place for us but that Jesus offers and invites us to come through his death, through his resurrection, be made right with God freely as a gift to be received by faith. Not that we have to earn it, not that we have to perform for it, and we can freely receive it by trusting in God and what he's done for us. You know, an infant can trust. An elderly person with dementia can trust. A blind beggar on the side of the road can trust. A Canaanite prostitute can trust. And so Rahab reminds us that the most important thing about any human person is not what they've done with their life, not what they've left undone with their life, not what group they might be aligned with, but what they trust who they trust in, where we put our faith. And just like Rahab in her salvation from judgment, you and me and absolutely every human person that we know from any background, from any ethnicity, from any lifestyle, any scandalous past, any legalistic mindset, any political persuasion, any sexual orientation, any former affiliation, we can be saved.
from God's judgment by faith, by trusting in God. And let's not beat around the bush. We need to be. We need to be because as as the Israelites stood there on the, the border and God's patience was coming to an end as he patiently waited for these people to to come to him and before he sent his judgment. Just like those Canaanites, you know, our our sins are not secret to the one who matters. God is being patient with us right now. But one day you and I will stand before him. We will come before King Jesus. And like Rahab, the only thing that will keep us standing in that day is if we're trusting in Him, if we have faith in Him. And so the Apostle Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Don't let the news go by you. Don't let the announcement go by you. Let God's reputation precede His judgment to you and receive it freely by faith, the good news that Jesus has lived, died, and risen again in your place for you and you can be saved. Your God is the Lord. And so we have a, a unique opportunity right now. As people made in God's image, yet people tarnished by our own sin, by nature and choice, to hear of God's goodness and say yes to that invitation to trust in Him. Being saved by faith alone means that there is nothing that you have done that disqualifies you. There is nothing that you need to do to qualify you to be made right with God. But you can be made right. You can be saved by faith alone. Now we know that this is also the the big idea of of Joshua chapter 2 because if we fast forward 1,300 years into the first century, there was uh, someone who who preached a sermon and, and in that sermon, got recounted in the book of Hebrews, is this great hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this about Rahab. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so in protecting the spies, Rahab hadn't really done anything and yet now started exercising that faith by being friendly with these spies. And so that means that you and I, right now, this very instant, perhaps we haven't done anything. Perhaps this is the first time that you have even heard about this Jesus guy. You have even heard about a book of Joshua. You can be made right with God this instant by putting your trust in him. As we move out from the the burger, from the center of the story, we see that it's not just Rahab who benefits from God's grace received by faith, but her family benefits too. And so Let's look quickly at what she asks of these spies, even as she's confessing who God is. She says in in verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a, a sure sign that you'll save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell us, tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And we see that it's not just a faith for herself, but it's a faith that forms a family. 
See, Rahab pleads for the sake of her biological family. They don't necessarily live with her house, but that she's going to tell them to come and be in our house when this judgment happens. We see in Joshua chapter 6 that, indeed, they were protected. They were spared. The, the Israelites, the Lord through them, had mercy on them. And it shows us that the conquest that we're about to see, that Joshua is very controversial for, the book, uh, it's not about ethnicity. It's not about race. but It's about allegiance to God. That there is mercy for anyone who might trust in God. But after that, we don't hear so much about Rahab's family. But we do hear about the new family, the lineage that she began. In Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament, it says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And so because of God's grace, received by faith, this Canaanite prostitute, became an ancestor of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ himself. Not only does God spare Rahab, but she becomes a central figure in the storyline that leads us to Jesus. And so by faith, we're made right with God. By faith, we enter a new family. By faith, we can change the trajectory of our biological family. Let this be an encouragement to us. If you are a brother or a sister, a mom or a dad, a son or a daughter, a cousin, we all have a family. And your faith can form, reshape, influence your family. I've heard it said before that that 90% of Christians come from a household with at least one Christian parent. 90%. And on the one hand, when we hear that, we think, man, we've got to go out and find more Rahabs. Like, like we need more people to come to know Jesus. On the other hand, we think, praise God for his faithfulness. He wasn't lying when he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a family. That God often uses the biological family to grow his spiritual family. And so let that be an encouragement to us in families, that our faith can shape our families. Parents, I've heard it said before that you know, there is a 0.0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. There is a 100% certainty that your child will stand before King Jesus one day. Let the odds shape, and priori- shape the priorities of your parenthood. And the same is true for those of us who are brothers and sisters who have mum and dads. We can change our family line by being faithful people who live out our trust in Jesus. But we know that the good news goes beyond blood. The good news goes beyond biology. Rahab wasn't just there about saving her family, but she was brought into a new family, into the people of God. And so the spies assure her that, yes, we're going to be true to our promises. But just to make sure that she knows, and in that kind of intervening time between when she says goodbye to them and when the Israelites are there on the doorstep of Jericho, so that she might continue to trust in God, they give her a sign. 
a scarlet cord. Says this in, in verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And so let's land the plane this morning by seeing that the promises are sealed with a sign. The promises are sealed with a sign. You know, there's there's often these odd details that are kind of entrenched in the stories of the Old Testament. And we must think, like, why did the author need to tell us what color the cord was? Was it really a, an important detail to tell us that it was a, a scarlet cord, scarlet being bright red? Well, red would have been a, a real feature in Israelite life at the time because the system of sacrifices and offerings made by the priests on behalf of the people exists as, as a sign. They would have seen a lot of blood. And that blood there was a sign to the people to show how costly and gory their sin really was. But this particular sign is linked to perhaps the most prominent sacrifice of them all, the story of the Passover that began at the beginning of this journey where God let his people free out of the hand of Pharaoh by having them paint the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of their house. And then his judgment sweeped through Egypt and passed over those who had the blood. And so on that night, they were saved from the final plague. In this instance, it's a scarlet cord who would dangle from the window of Rahab's house. So as God's judgment sweeps through Jericho, those who were in the house would be passed over, would be saved. You know, God gives us signs to make tangible his promises to us today. You know, some of us need a bit of extra help, don't we? You know, some of us, we're not intellectual enough to have our faith consigned to a book. But God gives us, through the words of the book, promises that are made tangible, appeal to our senses, our memories, through signs. And so he gives us the sign of, of water when we first come to faith in baptism. And that sign tells us, as we think about our past baptism, or we experience the baptism itself, or if we watch other people who are part of the family go down into the waters of baptism, that surely God will be true to his promise to wash us, to cleanse our hearts by faith and purify us. He also gives us the sign that that first Passover was the forerunner for. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, in the first century, which was the night of the Passover. He sent, was celebrating that Passover with his disciples. And he wanted to give his disciples a sign that would help them remember that he was about to shed his blood for them. He was about to be the lamb shed in their place and that his blood might be painted over the door of their hearts so that God's judgment would pass over them. And so he gave us the Lord's Supper. He gave us communion. Wine, so that we might remember his blood. Bread, so that we might remember his body. And so he took bread. And when he gave thanks, he passed it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he, he took the cup and he blessed it and gave it to his disciples. He said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so just like Rahab and her family, just like ancient Israel, just like the 12 on the night that Jesus was betrayed, those of us who have faith in him are invited to experience the sign of his promise to us. That when we participate in communion, we're reminded that there is nothing in our hands that we bring. Rather, we cling only to Jesus' death for us in our place to be made right with God. And so by faith, we can have Jesus' blood painted over the door of our lives. By faith, we can have that scarlet cord hung out the window of our lives. By faith, we take the drink, we eat the bread, remembering Christ's death in our place and hope for salvation from judgment to come. And so if you're here this morning, whoever you are and whatever background you come from, this morning you can experience the most important reality in the world. You have been let in on state secrets. You have been let in on the greatest news in the world that you can be made right with God by putting your trust in Him and by receiving the sign of his promise to you that if you trust in him, you will certainly be spared. You will certainly be saved. Put your trust in Jesus. And today we have a chance to express that trust. We're all going to take communion together. If you are trusting in Jesus, this is a meal for you. We're going to take it in a, a, a fresh way today. Uh, and that is that we're going to uh, have stations. There are four stations around the hall. Uh, and so I invite you, wherever you're seated, to time is right, come up, and we're going to take it in small groups together that we might remember this is a family meal. This is for those of us that, that God has saved together, brought together by his blood, that we might be rescued from judgment together. And so uh, please do, uh, after I pray, and I'll pray in a moment, uh, come either to the back or to the front, uh, and we're going to take communion together. Let me pray now. Gracious God, we thank you for the great news that has come down to us. Some of us, it's come down through the family. Others, it's come from strangers. That the Lord, our God, He is a God who is full of steadfast love and mercy, a God full of power and might, and yet one so willing to use his power and might, not against us, but for us, in sending his son, Jesus. God, we thank you for Jesus, for his life, his death, and his resurrection. We thank you for the place that Rahab has played in the lead up to Jesus, that she sits as a great example of the reality that all of us, wherever we're from, whoever we are, whatever we've done or left undone, we can be made right with you by faith. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray in this room right now that you might fill each of us with faith, that you might help us trust in you and receive the free gift of being made right with you, the free gift of being saved from the judgment to come. God, we pray that we might know as that relationship begins and as it continues, Lord, that it is only that we are right with you by faith. 
Keep us from falling into legalism. Keep us from falling into this moral performativity. And may, as we partake of communion today, we be reminded that we rest solely on your blood shed for us, your body given for us. Our hope rests not in ourselves. We don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but only in your mercy. And so, Lord, as we do come to the table, we thank you for these gifts, this bread, this juice. Lord, we pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, in an obedience to our Savior Christ, that we might be partakers by faith of his body and blood. And so renew us by your Holy Spirit. Unite us in the body of your Son and bring us into the joy of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.